Well, tonight I need you to put your thinking caps on, okay? So we're, we, we've, got some, we've got some deep waters to swim in, but they're, but they're important waters to swim in, and it's going to be good stuff. You've got to kind of hang with me for a moment because these are some very uh, wonderful things we're going to talk about concerning Christ. But I am leading our church on Wednesday nights through this study called uh, Consider Jesus, the Many Facets of Christ. And the point of this study is... Uh, there are many different um, aspects of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. And so we're, we're holding him up like a, like a jewel, like a diamond. And we're looking at Jesus from different angles. And so we can see his glory revealed in so many different ways. And we've had a great time talking about uh, some aspects of Jesus Christ. For example, the first week we talked about Jesus Christ being the lion and the Lamb. We talked a lot about that. We talked about Jesus being God and man. We talked about Jesus being gentle and severe. Last week we talked about Jesus being a proclaimer to the masses. He preached to the masses, but he also focused his efforts on a small group. And so we've had a a wonderful time just studying these different facets of Christ. And tonight we're going to talk about Jesus being powerful and or yet dependent. Powerful and Dependent. What does that look like? Why would I even say that? So we're going to dig into God's Word tonight. But just a quick reminder as to why this is important, why this study is critical. If you look there in your notes, I've given you this to you every week. We need to consistently consider Jesus for three reasons. Number one, so we can marvel at Him. Number two, so we can be transformed into His image. And number three, so we can learn from His example. As we gaze at Christ, consider Christ, think about Christ, study Christ, then we are changed, we, our, our worship for him grows, and we learn what it means to follow in his footsteps. And so, just like the Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, it's one of my favorite passages I call Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, my life passage. It says, we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So this study is all about us looking to Jesus, considering Jesus, fixing our eyes upon him. So, Let's talk about Jesus being powerful and dependent. And again, you got to put your thinking caps on, all right? You've got to hang with me because hopefully this will all uh, make sense as we work our way through the different texts. So what do I mean when I say Jesus is powerful and Jesus is dependent? Or Jesus was powerful during his time upon the earth, but Jesus was also dependent. Well, two things here I want to walk you through with some subpoints. But here's the first thing we need to consider or think about in relation to his power. Jesus possessed, listen, all power. Jesus is fully God, so Jesus uh, possesses the attributes of God, one of those being omnipotence, all power. Jesus possessed all power, and there were times when his deity was clearly on display. So when Jesus Christ came to earth, he took on human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, so we celebrate at Christmas time, and he lived on this earth for about 33 years. Jesus Christ, at certain moments, clearly displayed his deity. So there was no question that he was God on earth. And I want to just kind of remind you of some of those times. Look in Mark 4 there with me. Mark 4, verse 37. Mark 4, verse 37. The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee with with Jesus, and it says in verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And look at their response. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so Jesus here simply speaks to the wind and the waves and the storm immediately stops. That is a function of deity. That is not something that you and I have the capacity to do. Um, just recently I was, I was hunting with my 12-year-old and we were in a, in a, a tree stand and, and it was real windy that morning. It was, it was not real cold, but the wind was cold and the wind was blowing the stand back and forth and, and, and we were just getting chilly and, and so we left early. We didn't see a thing, didn't see any deer. Uh, saw some squirrels, no deer, and we left early, and we were going back home, and we were about uh, half a mile from the house, and this big buck just loped across the road right in front of us. Anyway, <clears throat> that's how it works. But anyway, um, we, we were in that tree stand. It would have been really nice for the wind to have stopped, but I didn't have the power to do that. I couldn't say, hey, wind, stop blowing, and it stopped blowing. That's up to God, right? God's the one that controls the elements, which, by the way, ought to give us pause before we complain about the weather. That's just food for thought, okay? God's the one calling the shots when it comes to weather. And so, uh, Jesus calmed the storm because he was God. And his, in that moment, his deity was clearly on display. Let me show you another example. Turn to Mark, or, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. This also takes place on the Sea of Galilee. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. This is after he feeds the 5,000 and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, we've read that story or heard about the story so many times we can find ourselves guilty of just reading that and not even thinking twice about it. But, but just kind of just slow down for a moment. Let's just, let's just read it again. It says, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. I submit to you that's pretty amazing, right? But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. I would have been too. And said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then we see the uh, story of Peter walking on the water. But look at their, their response in verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat, what? Worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. They knew by virtue of the fact that Jesus was walking on the water and getting in the boat and the storm stopping, they knew they were in the presence of deity. They call him here the Son of God, and they worshipped. And so his deity in this passage was clearly on display. Uh, let me show you one other one. This is interesting. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 43. At the beginning of his public ministry, the Bible says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to them, him, 
follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. In other words, he recognizes that Nathanael is a man who is an honest man. He's not, he's, not, he's not a man of guile or deceit. Nathaniel said to him, verse 48, How do you know me? They'd never met before. And he says, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so here, Jesus is operating in the realm of omniscience. He has, he's God, so he has all knowledge, and he's operating in that in this moment. And he sees that Nathaniel was under a fig tree before they even physically met. And, and look what Nathaniel says in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. He knows he's in the presence of deity when he is exposed to the omniscience of Christ. And so there were times during his three-year public ministry when Jesus would put his deity on display. Now if you look at that next uh, little blank there, the first bullet point under number one, or the only bullet point under number one. These displays of his deity accompanied his message by pointing people to his glory. So, so, so why did Jesus put his deity on display? Why did he, why did he you know, walk on the water where his disciples could see it? Why did he calm the storm? Why did he exercise his omniscience so that Nathaniel understood he was omniscient? Why did he do that? to put his glory on display as he to accompany his message. So for example, look over in John chapter 2 verse 1. John chapter 2 verse 1. Look what it says. It says on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were some six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, look at verse 11, the first of his signs, notice that word signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested what? His glory. So these signs, and there are seven of them, interspersed throughout the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, John is organized around the seven signs and the seven I am sayings. But these signs were meant to manifest, show his glory, to accompany, uh, to, to give authority to the message that he was preaching, that he was the Messiah, he was the great I am. Because every sign was accompanied with a, a, a message or, or metaphor related to that sign. So these signs were done for a very specific purpose. He did not do signs for the purpose of just wowing folks. That wasn't why he did signs. You know, signs, if you think about just signs we see every day, signs point you beyond themselves, right? So if I was driving uh, on I-55 South and I saw a sign that said Jackson, 195 miles, 
I would not get out at that point and go to the sign and say, I'm in Jackson. Right? Be foolish. The sign is not the final destination. The sign is pointing me beyond itself to the final destination. And these signs, like turning water into wine, were not meant just to wow folks. They were meant to point beyond themselves to the one who did them. They were meant to show the character and the nature of Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that his message did come with ultimate authority. And so, during his public ministry, Jesus possessed, or during his whole life, but but during his public ministry, he would put his power on display for all to see as a function of his deity, God on earth. God can walk on water. God knows all things. God can speak to the storm and cause it to stop blowing and all of that, God on earth. And so we know that Jesus, these famous stories, Jesus would put his deity on display. Everybody got that? So would you say, let's just talk for a moment, would you say that Jesus was powerful? Yes, and he still is, right? He's alive today. He still is powerful. Okay, it's power, clearly on display. I don't have to convince you tonight that Jesus is powerful. But here's the second part of this, and this is where it gets pretty interesting. For the most part, for the most part, Jesus laid down the rights of deity and lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So there were times when Jesus acted uh, in accordance with his deity, God on earth, doing things God does. But for the most part, mostly... Jesus limited the operation of his deity and lived in his humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just show you this in God's words so you don't think I'm just making crazy stuff up. Turn to Philippians with me. Philippians, book of Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3. By the way, I, I'm, I'm feel confident that you may have some questions tonight as I walk through this. If you have a question, just jot it down and we'll, we'll cover questions at the end of this time tonight. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, if you're still with me, say amen. The Bible says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's an important verse right there, isn't it? It's an important verse. That, that verse really is the key to fulfillment in life. Because if you're living just for you, and it's all about you, you're going to be miserable. You really are. But if you put others ahead of yourself, that's when you start to find real joy, real peace, real fulfillment. So wait, how can I learn to live like that? Well, look what he says next. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he's saying, hey, be like Jesus. This humility I'm speaking of was modeled by Christ. And then he begins to talk about the, the links that Jesus went to uh, because he was so humble. And look what it says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was on equal footing with God the Father because he was God himself. The, the Bible teaches there's one God in essence and nature existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. And so Jesus is just as much God as God the Father, and just as much God as God the Son. So he's on equal footing with the Father is what it's saying there. He wasn't grasping at deity. He was deity. He was God. 
But it says in verse 7, but he emptied himself. Now there have been books and courses and all kinds of things written about that word emptied himself. That, that, that phrase is the word kenosis, where we get the word kenosis from. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so he's, what he's saying here is when he took on humanity, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, we celebrate that at Christmas, right? When he took on human flesh, there was an emptying that took place at that moment. Now what in the world does that mean? That he emptied himself. This means that Jesus, of his own volition, laid aside the full rights and privileges of deity. Let me say it again. It means that he laid aside, he emptied himself of the full rights and privileges of deity. doesn't mean he became less God. He had to be fully God to die and pay the infinite debt that our sin deserves. So he did not, he did not become less God. He was fully God. Born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man. So it doesn't mean he, he became less God or backed off his deity or his, or his godness. It means that he laid aside in humility. This would take great humility. He laid aside the full rights and prerogatives of deity. So that takes humility, right? Because if I could speak to the weather and make it stop, I'd want to do it all the time. And I wouldn't want to lay that aside. I want to have that right anytime I needed it. But there were times when Jesus just emptied himself and did not take on his rights as God. For example, you remember when Jesus, well, we talked about John 1. Jesus uses omniscience, right? He knew Nathaniel when he was under the fig tree. But do you remember when Jesus was talking with his disciples about the end times, Matthew 24 and 25? Do you remember when Jesus was talking about when all this stuff was going to come into play and the fulfillment, the end time scenario would begin to unfold? He said, no one knows the day nor the hour, not even me. Remember Jesus saying that? He said, I don't even know the day or the hour. Which, by the way, if you have a, a prophecy prognosticator on TV giving you some years or dates or months that it's all going to happen, they're lying because Jesus didn't even know when he was on the earth. But you say, wait, what's happening there? John 1, he's operating in his omniscience. But here in Matthew 24, 25, he, he, is, he is limiting his omniscience. He doesn't know when the end times will come during his time upon the earth. You know why? Because he laid down the right to know. That's what's happening there. But for whatever reason, he and the Father decided that he would not know the exact times of the scenarios that would lead to the culmination of all things. And so Jesus emptied himself. He laid aside the, the right to know that. And, and for the most part... Jesus lived in that way. He lived with his rights as God laid aside, and he operated as in his humanity in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now you say, wait, how do you know that he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. So we talked about him emptying himself. Now let's look at Acts chapter 10. I told you, just keep your thinking caps on. We're going to... We're going to tie this all together in a minute. But look in Acts chapter 10 with me. Now what I'm about to say has some serious implications for you and me. Okay, So you've got to hang in there because if what I'm about to say is true, and it is because it's from the Word of God, then this has major, major ramifications for the potential we have to live the Christian life. Look what it says in Acts chapter 10. 
Fast forward to verse 38. This is Peter preaching in the household of Cornelius. I've, I've preached on this passage before just recently. I know you remember that sermon, so I won't rehash it. It's a joke. It's a joke. All right. Acts chapter 10. Look what it says in verse 38. This is Peter preaching about Jesus. He says, we're back at verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, watch this, with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Jesus, let me say it like this, anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? Because he was God on earth? No, because God was with him. So what he's saying here is most of his life was lived in the in, in functioning in his humanity. He's still fully God, fully man. That hasn't been diminished but he's functioning, living mostly in his humanity, in the power of the Spirit. That's what this verse is saying. Now, that leads us to the big question. Why? Why did Jesus lay aside the rights of deity and live in accordance with his humanity in the power of the Spirit? Why was he so powerful and yet so dependent Why did he depend on the Spirit's power for him to live his life? Well, there are some very good answers to that question. So let me me just walk you through the reason why Jesus laid down the rights of deity, lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Number one, to earn perfect righteousness. To earn perfect righteousness. Over in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a very important verse, the Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin. That we might become his righteousness. Here's what that means. It means that Jesus went to the cross and took all of our sin on himself. But notice it says he was without sin, right? He became sin who knew no sin. He was perfect, but he took all of our sin on himself. And when we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, his payment on the cross is applied to our account. So our sins are no longer held against us. Our sins are washed away. Our sins are forgiven. But here's what happens at the moment we're saved. Not only are our sins given, forgiven, but he gives us as a gift his perfect righteousness. He gives us his perfection as a gift. So now, when God the Father looks at that, what theologians call imputed righteousness, they look at, God looks at us not as, as wounded, weak, broken sinners. He looks at us as forgiven and robed in the righteousness of his son. Jesus has given us his righteousness as a gift. But listen to me, for him to give us his righteousness, he had to earn it. That's why the Bible calls him the second Adam. The first Adam blew it, right? The Garden of Eden, he blew it. So Jesus had to come, and as he said to John the Baptist when he was baptized, I've got to fulfill all righteousness. I've got to, I've got to live out the perfection that Adam could not live out, so that I can go as a sinless Savior down the cross and then give my perfection, give my righteousness to those who place their faith in me. So Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit in his humanity so he could earn righteousness to give to other humans. And he had to do that in his humanity. Let me show you another verse. Turn over to to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verse 19, the Bible says, 
Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, that's us, so by the one man's obedience, righteousness, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus earned righteousness by living it out in his humanity in the power of the Spirit. So when we embrace him as Lord and Savior, our sin is, is, is applied to the cross and it's forgiven and his righteousness is given to us. By the way, that's a pretty good exchange, isn't it? He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. That's good news, isn't it? And so he had to live a perfect life in order to have anything to give us, right? He had to live righteously as a human to give other humans righteousness as a gift. That makes sense? I'm trying to say it from all different types of directions because this is a, a deep concept, but it's important. So he lived in his humanity in the power of the Spirit for the most part, not all the time, but for the most part, to give us his Perfect righteousness. I love this verse over in 1 Corinthians. You're in Romans. Turn over to 1 Corinthians, the next book. First chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look what it says in verse 30. This was John Wesley's favorite verse, by the way. He preached on this verse more than any other verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's saying here, Paul's writing, Jesus came, became to us righteousness. We got his righteousness as a gift. That's called imputed righteousness. So that's why Jesus lived primarily in accordance with his humanity and the power of the Spirit, so he could earn that righteousness to give to us as a gift. Right? Okay. Now here's the second reason that he did that. This is important. This is where it applies to all of us in this room. Well, the other one did too, but he did that to be an example for us. To be an example for us. 1 Peter 2.21, we'll talk about that verse in just a few moments, says that he, he left an example for us to follow in his steps. How many of you ever read this, uh, the book In His Steps by Charles Sheldon? It's an old Old book, little little book, but it's where the phrase, what would Jesus do, came from. How many of you have ever um, worn a what would Jesus do bracelet? WWJD. All right, that was a big, big craze. Uh, back in the day, there were t-shirts and bracelets and Bibles and all kinds of stuff. Um, but really, it's a good question, and it came from First uh, Peter chapter 2. Jesus left us an example to follow in his steps. So it is, it is wise, as we are walking through life, to say sometimes, Hey, what would Jesus do? And try to do what he would do because he left us a pattern. And listen to me, because he was living in accordance with his humanity and the power of the Spirit, it, it was a pattern that we are able to follow. And, and let me say it like this. If he just came to earth and said, hey, do what I do, and he calmed storms and walked on water, we'd be in trouble, right? It's impossible. We can't, we can't mimic Jesus' deity. Theologians call that that his, those are his incommunicable attributes. They don't, they don't transfer over to me and you. That's just what God does. So if the only example we had to follow was Jesus just doing God's stuff all the time, we'd be in trouble, right? It'd be like, it'd be like what do you think it was like to be a sibling of Jesus? Right? I mean, he, you know, he had half-brothers and sisters, and, and he was perfect, right? He never sinned. And you can just imagine Mary sometimes saying, can't you be more like Jesus? But listen to me, 
they could have been more like Jesus because Jesus was primarily living in his humanity in the power of the Spirit, dependent upon God the Father and the Holy Spirit to help him to live a pure life. And that's, that's true of most of his ministry. So, most of what we see in Jesus is something that we can emulate. That's a, that's a phenomenal idea, isn't it? It's within our grasp because it was him living in his humanity. Now, there are major implications. So let me show you why or different ways that Jesus was an example for us. First of all, in temptation. He lived in accordance with his humanity and the power of the Spirit to be an example for us in temptation. Over at, look over in Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4. Everybody still with me? Okay, all right. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, it says, Then, this is after his baptism, Jesus was led up by who? The Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. I'm tempted to talk about the pinnacle of the temple, but we're going to move on tonight. Um, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And that's the account of Jesus being being tempted by Satan himself. Now, here's how Jesus resisted the temptation. He didn't just say, Satan, I'm God, I can't sin, so go away. No, we see him here in his humanity really resisting the temptation. And he's doing it in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit led him to the wilderness. He's living in accordance with the Spirit's power in his life. And he's, and he's resisting temptation by the Word of God. Do you notice every time that Satan tempted him, Jesus responded by saying, It is written. And he would quote an Old Testament verse. Everybody see that? And so, Jesus is showing us this. Now, don't miss this. It's so important. He's showing us that we can say no to temptation. We can say no to the devil. If... We'll follow his example. Live in the power of the Spirit and let your life be guided by the Word of God. If you'll do that like Jesus did, you can have victory over temptation too. And so it's extraordinary that Jesus fought temptation in his humanity by the power of the Spirit to leave us an example to say, hey, we can can fight temptation too. We don't have to give in to the, the, the lure and the enticements of the enemy. Isn't that good? It's an example for us to follow. Now, I hesitate whether to mention this or not, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. There is there's a, an issue that, that seminary students talk about around the seminary tables, and professors talk about in their classroom, and you can read some books about it, and most people don't even know that people are talking about this, but it is an important issue. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because it will help us to understand this a little bit better. The issue deals, I'm going to give you a big word real quick, okay? Deals with the peccability versus the impeccability of Christ. You say, what in the world does that mean? Okay? What that means is, 
theologians discuss, was Christ peccable? Was he able to sin? Or was he impeccable? Sin was not even possible. And that's a big discussion. Was Jesus Christ even able to sin? Because folks say, well, if Jesus Christ wasn't even able to sin, then the temptations meant nothing. No big deal, right? Uh, so no, he, he wasn't going to give in anyway. He wasn't, he's God. He wasn't going to sin. He's impeccable. And so you're, you're diminishing the, the temptation narratives and how he fought against temptation and lived a pure life as an example for us. And so, again, there's a great discussion on this. Could Jesus have sinned? Was he peccable? Was he impeccable? Now, listen, I'm glad you came tonight because I'm going to give you the answer to the question. Okay? And, and, and to give you the answer to the question, I'm going to give you an illustration. Um, let's just say that there's a, a gentleman that's going to um, try to break the world record for distance swimming. Okay? I think the record's somewhere around 70 miles. You can Google me on that. If I'm wrong, then just, you know. Tell me later. And, and so let's say he's, he's going to try to swim 75 miles. He's going to try to break the long-distance swimming record. And, and, and his team is there to assist him. He gets in the water to, to begin this 75-mile swim, and there's a rescue boat. Many of these, if you ever watch these folks trying to break long-distance swimming records, they have a rescue boat there because when you're swimming long distances, you can get caught up in jellyfish or sharks, sharks can be an issue, or you can just wear out and start cramping and and you can't go any further. And so these long-distance swimmers have rescue boats. If they get in trouble, they will pick them up out of the water, okay? So let's just say there is this man. He's trying to break the record. He has a rescue boat. They're not real close, but they're close enough to get him if he gets in any sort of trouble. And, and the man swims, and he labors, and he, and, he, and he keeps going, and keeps going, and keeps going, and keeps going. And he makes it to the finish line. He breaks, or he swims 75 miles in the water. Everybody got that illustration in your mind? Now, here's the question. Could that swimmer have drowned? The answer is no. The rescue boat was there. Remember the rescue boat? Okay, right? If he got into trouble, what was the rescue boat going to do? Pick him up out of the water, okay? So, could the swimmer have drowned? Okay, no, I'm not trying to trick you. Okay, all right. Now, why? Why would he not have drowned? Okay, he had a resource to count on to get him out of the water if he was floundering. Here's the second question. Why is it that the swimmer did not drown? Why didn't he drown? Did the rescue boat help him? No. Why didn't he drown? He kept swimming, right? So he made it in his own strength. He didn't drown, but it wasn't because the rescue boat helped him. It's because he did it in his own strength. Now, you have that that illustration fixed in your mind? Now, let's apply that to the whole peccability versus impeccability discussion. Uh, I believe Jesus was and is impeccable. He could not have sinned. So, question. Why couldn't he not have sinned? What's the answer to the question? Why could he have not sinned? God, right? God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. 
I, I don't believe God can commit a sin. It's against his nature and his character. Everything God does is right. Everything God does is good. He's pure. He's holy. And so the reason that Jesus could not have sinned was because he's God. Now, why didn't he sin in Matthew chapter 4? Why didn't he sin? What did he do to not sin? What's that? Word of God in the power of the Spirit in his humanity. So see, I believe that even though Jesus Christ could not have sinned on this earth, the reason he didn't sin was not because he was just God on earth. He actually resisted temptation in the power of his uh, in the power of the Spirit, in his humanity, so now it becomes an example that we can follow. Now we know it's possible because Jesus did it. Everybody with me? I know, I know it's deep, but, but I believe that illustration helps answer the question. Yes, Jesus Christ was God. He could not have sinned. But the reason he did not sin is because in his humanity, he lived perfectly in the power of the Spirit, relying upon the Word of God, and that's why he defeated Satan in the wilderness. Everybody got that? Like the long distance swimmer, he did the work, all right, to achieve victory. And so uh, he leaves an example for us to follow in resisting temptation. Here's another example he leaves for us. Not only does he help us to learn how to resist temptation, but he gives an example for us in unjust suffering. Unjust suffering. Look what it says over in 1 Peter Chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Watch this. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's what he's saying. When you find yourself suffering, unjustly even, follow the example of Christ. Entrust yourself to God. He's the judge. He'll take care of it all. Don't seek your own revenge. God will take care of it. You just trust him and, 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 and walk in that trust. He, he said Jesus didn't revile. He didn't, he didn't try to get folks back. He, he didn't threaten. He just kept trusting himself to God. And so Jesus left us an example as to how we ought to function in the midst of unjust suffering. The world says, when you are suffering unjustly, get your revenge. Revenge will make you feel better. The Bible says, leave it in God's hands. He does a better job of taking care of things than you will. Amen? Jesus also left us an example to follow in obedience. In obedience. It says over in Hebrews chapter 12 that, that Jesus was obedient. He, he, he endured even hardship by going to the cross And look what it says over in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Matthew 26, verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus gave us an example of how we can obey and, and, and trust God and do the right thing, even when it's hard. Anytime you're obeying God and it's hard and you want to give up, Hebrews says, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Isn't that what it says? When you're running the race with endurance and, and you want to throw in the towel, read chapter 12, the whole thing, your knees get weak and, and, you, and you feel feeble, fix your eyes upon Jesus because he is an example of obeying even when it got tough. And he never threw in the towel. And I'm glad he didn't throw in the towel because he went to the cross and died for you and for me, right? And so Jesus leaves us an example to follow. In, in his humanity and the power of the Spirit, he obeyed and did the right thing, even in overwhelming circumstances. So we learn, hey, if we live in the power of the Spirit, if we obey God, we have the capacity to do it, to stick by the stuff and keep on keeping on. Next. He was an example for us in ministry to the hurting. And here's where it gets interesting. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And this, will, this one will wake you up, okay? Luke chapter 10. Look in verse 8. He's giving instructions to the 72 disciples. He's sending them out to uh, go to the different towns and preach the gospel. And, and he gives us some instructions. Look what he says in verse 8. Whenever you enter a town, Luke 10, verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. We had a training session this uh, past weekend about the four fields and, and uh, getting ready for some upcoming missions partnerships overseas in South Asia. And we talked about this, eating what is before you. Then in verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus here says to his disciples... Heal the sick in it. So, is it appropriate for us to pray for the sick to be healed? Is this even within our, our realm of influence as just plain old ordinary folks to pray for someone to be healed expecting that they might be healed? Well, remember what it said over in Acts 10, verse 38? Remember what it said? It said that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and it said that in the power of the Spirit, under the anointing of the Spirit, well, look at it. Turn back to Acts 10, or put it up on the screen for me. Acts 10, verse 38. There it is. You guys are fast. Bob, you're fast. I try to beat Bob, and I can't ever beat him. So it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So I believe that means that Jesus, in accordance with his humanity, under the power of the Holy Spirit, went around and saw people healed. He'd pray and they would be healed. And we know that this is communicable because he tells his disciples here, when you go into a town and there's somebody sick, heal the sick. Pray that they would be healed. Now, of course, God's the one that does the healing, right? But God gives us the capacity, or you might say the authority, to pray over people. And in, in, as, a, 
and in response to our prayers, he heals people. In other words, our prayers are a means to God healing folks. That's what Jesus says over in Luke chapter 10. And so Jesus, in his humanity, in the power of the Spirit, saw people healed. He told his disciples, you go out in the power of the Spirit, pray for people to be healed. So, is it appropriate for us as just ordinary human beings, when we encounter someone sick, is it appropriate for us to lay hands on them and pray that they might be healed, and expecting that it might just happen. Is that appropriate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen to me. Don't let the shysters out there, the Benny Hens, don't let those folks uh, take away the, 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 the biblical picture of the impact an ordinary Christian can have by praying over someone and God working through that prayer to heal the person you're praying for. Just because there are a bunch of shysters out there doesn't mean we should just kick, kick prayers for healing to the curb. It's a biblical thing. He told us this. When you go into an area, pray or heal the sick is what he says. And so I think it's altogether appropriate for us to pray for people to be healed and, and, and trust God with the results. Particularly, now listen, particularly when you go into an area um, that... Uh, when you go into a, a, an area of the world that is filled with people that have never heard the gospel. I, I, I think I've told you this before, but when I was in India, the first time I went to India, we would train Christians, and after the training, uh, Christians would line up to come talk to the visiting speakers, and they'd come to you and want you to pray for them and their families. And, and so as these folks were coming and we were talking and praying, uh, I would uh, have them share their story with me. Almost every person I met that was a Christian in South India was a Christian because of a, either a personal healing or a healing of someone in their family. God was just moving in supernatural ways, and it got their attention, and they considered the claims of Christ and became believers in Christ. And so over in South Asia, that's, that's, that's ordinary. It's ordinary. Why? Because there's so much need for the gospel over there. All right? And so when you go into an area... That is under gospel, great need. Uh, trust God to heal folks, to get people's attention. Remember, a sign is not meant to make a big deal about the sign, but to point them beyond the sign to Jesus. It's okay to pray for people, to, to lay hands on people and pray for them. Um, and so, I think it's something we ought to do, because Jesus did it in the power of the Spirit, uh, in accordance with His humanity. He gave that responsibility to His disciples when He sent them out. So He gave us uh, a pattern of, of ministry to the hurting. And that's not just healing. It's, it's people that are outcast. Jesus would, would love them and minister to them. He went out of his way to, to meet the woman in Samaria. He stopped to talk to blind men. I mean, he was always talking to the outcast, the, the tax gatherers, the, 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 those that were shunned in society. Jesus would go out of his way to speak into their life and love them and, and be kind to them and speak truth to them. We ought to do the same thing, right? Because Jesus did it in his humanity, in the power of the Spirit, we can do the same thing. Which leads to the next one. Jesus was an example for us in proclaiming the gospel. In proclaiming the gospel. Look what it says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth. I'm almost through, but let me just finish this up. Luke chapter 4. They ask him to read the scroll. Verse 17, it says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This was a, a prophetic passage about the Messiah written hundreds of years before Jesus was actually upon the earth. But Jesus reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He, the Spirit, has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. And then verse 20 it says, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is saying, Hey, hundreds of years ago, Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, said the Messiah would come anointed with the Spirit to preach the gospel. Hey, and it's happening in your midst today. I'm the Messiah ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, do we have that same power available to us? We'll turn over to Acts chapter 1. Be the last verse we look at. Acts chapter 1. Jesus giving his final instructions to his disciples before he ascended to the Father. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, well-known verse. Jesus says, But you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so listen to me, here's what I'm saying. Jesus, during his time upon the earth, in accordance with his humanity, in the power of the Spirit, preached the gospel and saw wonderful things happen. We have the same capacity to be filled and anointed by the same Holy Spirit to preach the same message and see the same results. As a matter of fact, you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going you're to see greater things happen through your ministries than even happen through mine. And I don't think he meant um, greater in terms of greater in, in nature. He meant greater in scope. In the power of the Spirit, you're going to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so... We have the same capacity to preach, proclaim, share, be witnesses of Christ in the power of the Spirit, just like Jesus did when he was on this earth. Here's how Bruce Ware says it, New Testament scholar. He writes, the very resource, this is a great sentence, the, the very resource of Holy Spirit empowerment granted to Jesus for his life of obedience and faithfulness to the Father is now granted to Jesus' disciples as they carry forward the message of Christ, living lives of obedience to Christ, all in the power of the Spirit. So this idea that most of Jesus' life was lived in accordance with his humanity and the power of the Spirit has major implications for us. It means that Jesus has given us an example to follow. We can walk in the footsteps of Jesus as long as... We are anointed by the Holy Spirit the same way Jesus was. As long as every day we surrender and say, Holy Spirit of God, fill up my life, control me, empower me, direct me, guide me, give me courage, give me boldness, use me today. And if we'll let the Holy Spirit have his way in our life, we can, in a very real way, follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Amen? I'm not talking about walking on water. That's, that's deity. Okay? I'm not talking about omniscience. That's, that's deity. I'm talking about how Jesus lived most of his life in his humanity to earn righteousness and as an example for us to follow.